when you look at the history of labor, we see transformation. Right now, everyone laments, oh, we're losing manufacturing to robotics, right? right? Oh, this is horrible. Poor people, they're losing their jobs. And at a micro level for any given person, it is unfortunate. But we don't lament the fact that we used to be 70% farmers here in the United States. No one says, oh, couldn't we go back where more of us were working on the farm? We're all better off now that I think it's around 4 or 8% of the U.S. population is in farming. Wow. But that small percentage of our population can produce enough food for everyone. And that lets... You are now listening to Stability Podcast, brought to you by Hasnashra. This week's episode is sponsored by Relief. Please check our Instagram at Stability Podcast to enter our giveaway with... Hi, I'm Mark Hirschberg. When I began my career 20-some years ago, I started as a software developer and quickly moved into becoming a CTO, a chief technology officer. I've built startups, some as small as three people, to helping Fortune 500 companies, some as large as 300,000 people. I've worked in all sorts of industries and worked with businesses at all different scales. Along the way, I discovered there were certain skills that we needed to be successful, particularly to grow up and get into these more senior roles, skills like leadership, team building, networking, negotiations, but no one had ever taught them to me. And so as I began to teach them to myself, I wanted to incorporate that into the development of my team, but there weren't great resources. So in parallel to my primary career of building startup companies, I also helped to start a class at MIT known as the Career Success Accelerator. We took feedback that we had gotten from corporate America on what skills they saw that we were missing, and we've been teaching it to our students now for the past 20 years. This inspired me to write the book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, which is how I can take these skills and reach a much larger audience with them. Wow, that is very, so you started your degree as a software developer. I have undergraduate degrees in physics, electrical engineering, computer science, and then my graduate work was in cryptography. Holy, how long were you in school for? Six years, I was a little slow and lazy. I probably could have done it in five if I had applied myself. All, like all those degrees? Yep. That is crazy, man. I'm barely going to graduate my engineering degree in five years. Oh, that's, that's nuts. Uh, did you go to school in the States or did you go to school internationally somewhere? I went to MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Wow, that is very impressive. That, uh, is, uh, how did you find your experience at MIT? Not a lot, I can't, you, know, you don't talk to a lot of people that have gone to MIT, so it's very impressive to hear from that. I really loved MIT. MIT is definitely known to be a challenging school. There's the famous expression, getting an education from MIT is like trying to get a drink from a fire hose. And you definitely got overwhelmed with the level of work. Admittedly, I wasn't a great student at first, but thankfully learned how to focus and pay attention to my work. And I really loved it, including the intensity of MIT. And then, of course, outside of your core classes, MIT just has such a wide range of wonderful activities to really indulge any type of interest or hobby you might have. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a unique and wonderful place. 
Right. That's that's awesome. When you said you started a, a lot of tech start like startups uh, when you were younger or when you first started out doing like what kind of startups did you build and how how did you come up with those ideas? They have been across the board. In most of them, I was not the founder myself. Right. I'm much more interested in growing organizations. I like taking an organization once that seed idea is created. And you need someone who's super passionate about some industry or idea. And I like taking the idea and then how do we scale it? How do we double it every six or nine months? The revenue, the team, the product. That's the challenge I find. But the industries I've worked in have ranged from a new software language to large scale data systems. Now what we call data science. Back then we, we didn't have the term for it. Right. I've built labor marketplaces, online advertising, media markets. Um, I've done a number of cybersecurity startups. That's obviously ties into my graduate work. Right. So yeah, a lot of different things. But so as a person who's speaking from like where I'm working on my first startup and like trying to get it off the ground and just, you know, figuring out the idea of it, how how do you, how would you say if someone did have an idea, like what would be the challenges that you know, that you kind of overcame when it came to like helping a startup grow or trying to find someone who has a startup and trying to get on board and helping them grow? How'd you go about doing that? Well, the answer to to which challenges is all of them, because if you're doing a startup, you face every problem. And it begins with understanding, do you have a viable product? Mm. And if not, how do you make sure this product or service is viable. There is market demand for it. You can sell it. And so I'd focus on understanding that and then looking at what are the steps needed. Now that's going to vary based on your startup. That might be what can you do yourself versus you need to get someone else? How much money do you need? How do you raise that money? How do you start to execute? How little can you get away with? We talk about the MVP, the minimum viable product for engineering but what's the MVP for sales? What's the MVP for your marketing, for customer support? How little can you get away with in each one so that you can move forward without over-investing resources in an area where those resources can be better applied somewhere else? Right. When, when you're doing a startup, right, everyone says, oh, you need to invest money into it and stuff. Do you believe there's, it's possible to start do a startup without investing any of your money to begin with? Absolutely. Time and money basically can be traded off for each other. If you know nothing about software and you want to create a tech startup, you're going to have to find a software developer. And maybe you can convince someone, but more likely you're going to spend some money to hire those people. On the other hand, I know software developers who have said, hey, I'm just going to start building because I know how to code and here's that initial product. And from there, they can start to get customers or can then go and raise money later. I'm using uh, software as an example, but really I've seen in different fields, people can say, I'm going to just start doing this without any investment. A not uncommon technique is to begin with a service offering where you're a consultant and you go out and sell that service. And then as you start to pick up customers, paying customers, you start to say, here's a common problem. And now I'm going to productize the solution to this problem. So I can spend each of my time going and solving it. But if I spend a little extra time building it, now I can spend less time solving it. I can just sell that solution. So that's another approach you can take. Interesting. So 
for example, people do startups all the time. And so most of the times, you know, sometimes they succeed, sometimes they don't succeed. What do you think is the biggest downfall of a, pro, uh, of a tech startup, tech or any startup that does succeed or that doesn't succeed? What is the critical factor there that you think from your experience? Of the ones that don't succeed, I would say it's typically they haven't thought through their product well enough. They don't really understand the demand. If, is there a sufficient market for it? And do you have the capability to sell into that market? Because even if you have a good product, if you don't know how to get that product in front of your customers and put them in a position where they can go buy it, it's just not going to happen. For the ones who overcame that and now have some early success, the problems I see time and time again, it's all people issues. I've rarely seen technology fail once you have that initial working product. Because here's the dirty secret. Most tech startups, they're not tech startups any more than they're electricity startups or chair startups, right? They happen right. to have these things, but that's not really what gives them a competitive advantage. It's some other type of business process. And so it's the people issues, more than the technology issues that cause problems. And probably the number one people issue I see is that what got you to this point, the thinking, the organization, the process, the way you structure the teams, that doesn't work going forward because it has to change at that next scale. And when I've done consulting, time and time again, I see companies that had success and then they plateau and they think we'll just push harder, but it's not going to work for them. I have to come in now, clean up the mess and then restructure them to get to that next level. Right. So do you think at some point a company will plateau and then they do have, they have to change up their whole method of how they're running everything because, you know, not every, it can't always be succeeding. Well, let's take an example. When you get your first customer, your salesperson, if you have one, she's gone out, she got the customer interested and the customer starts asking for things and it's kind of all hands on deck. The CEO, the engineers, the head of finance, everyone comes together. Okay, what does the customer need? Oh, quick, they need to write up on this. Someone write it up, right? Oh, they need this feature. Quick, have the engineers build it. And you're just doing this chaos. The analogy is like watching five-year-olds play soccer, right? Everyone just mm -hmm. runs to the ball and that's how you get that first sale and maybe your second or third sale if this is an enterprise customer. That doesn't work for sale 97, right? right? At that point, you need to have all your sales collateral, your sales process down. The sales team should be able to say, here's some 24-year-old who doesn't have a lot of experience, but we're going to take them, stick them in the slot, give them the script, teach them, you know, here's the prospecting, here's how you find them, here's how to answer objections. Don't worry if you're not the greatest salesperson just follow along, follow the process, because we have a good product here and we know how to sell it. And you just have to follow the playbook, right? right and that's yeah. the advanced soccer team. That's, you're the forward, you're the halfback, you're defense. We all know our positions and we have the plan. So it's so, over time. So if you have a product, if you know it's viable and then it's the people and then it's like, oh, okay, now we have a playbook. Now let's go with it. And it just continues to grow from there. Yeah. Now that was the first state and the end state. There's a lot of intermediate states. What those are will vary depending on the path your startup takes, but right. it's constantly saying, this is what we need at this stage, but what do we need at the next stage? 
Right. So after doing all this stuff at startup, right, that's a, that's a career on its own. Like, you know, starting up startups and different play in different fields and all that, that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of energy. So when, at what point did you decide that, you know, all these things uh, required these, some kind of skills that I never learned? How, when did you decide that this was very important to you and you needed to pursue it? I learned it early in my career. I still would have liked to have learned it even earlier, but I recognized this was the late nineties and I wanted to become a CTO. Now there were lots of people my age and younger who were CTOs. They would say, Oh, I'm doing a startup. Give me money, which back in the (laughs) nineties was about all it took. Say, look, tech startup, something.com. Oh, and I'm going to be the CTO. Poof. They're a CTO. They don't really know how to run a business. They don't really know anything other than maybe how to write a couple lines of code but they were CTOs and I'd watch them fail. I could see not just technical failures, but also in organizational and people failures. I started to think about what does it take to be successful? All of us, if you think about the people who you respect as a corporate leader or a leader in general, they have all these great skills like leadership or communications. They know how to negotiate. They've got extensive networks. They know how to build effective teams. None of this is ever taught to us in college. So something is missing. And that's when I had that insight back in roughly my mid-20s that there were some skills out there I didn't have. But if I wanted to be successful and not just a CTO and title, I'd need to pick them up. Wow, that's 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 amazing. Yeah, it, when you talk about like that, I think about all the leaders that, you know, as a generation that I'm in that we look up to, especially tech tech leaders, you know, like Bill Gates, like, you know, you're talking about uh, Elon Musk and all these different multimillionaire billionaire people that have, you know, you've witnessed in your own life get to the peak that they're at, right? Even in like in my lifetime, I've noticed Jeff Bezos get to the top. You know, like, yeah, okay, he was a little rich before I was born, but his companies, but you witnessed him go to the top. You witnessed Elon Musk get to the top with the, all these different companies and the innovations that they're brought in. And it's, it's ridiculous, which is like, wow, but what makes them stand out compared to the other, right? Is it their idea? Because, or is it their skill set that they have? What would you say if someone were to say, oh, that person achieved success? Do you think it's the product that achieved the success or it's the person who sold the product? I think it varies a bit. For example, the famous Bill Gates story, he was an engineer. And early on, back when there weren't millions of us, (laughs) he saw an opportunity. Now, one thing he had when you read the history of Microsoft, his mother was on the board of IBM, or excuse me, she was on the board with, I believe, the CEO of IBM. So she had a direct connection into the CEO of IBM. And so Bill Gates was able to use that connection to get in to initially license his software. Wow. That is an opportunity most of us don't have. There was definitely some right place, right time for Bill Gates and Microsoft. That's not to say what they've done since wasn't impressive, wasn't a testament to his capabilities, but there was some amount of luck there. Uh, You could say, you know, Jeff Bezos with Amazon, it was Amazon and easily a hundred other online sales companies. Why did Amazon win? Some of it was probably 
his own drive. The fact that he took, I believe he convinced his parents to cash in their 401k to invest in the company, right? It's some of that push that helped grow him. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of it was just timing and luck, right? If he had been born 20 years earlier, 20 years later, could he have done it? Who knows? The thing- the thing, yeah, for sure. Like, sorry, I had to cut you off there for a sec because I was. That's another thing that you know that always comes comes and knocking on my head or in my back of my mind is like, you know, you can start this amazing idea, but at the end of the day, you might not succeed because because the, you it's not the right time for it, right? Or and then th- down the line, someone else might come up with the same idea and succeed because of the fact that like at that time it was needed. So, do you think luck plays a giant role? luck and timing play a giant role if something will become successful or not. There's no question in my mind that luck plays a factor. Now, let's be clear on what that is because certainly Jeff Bezos wouldn't have said in 2017, oh, I think we need a big e-commerce site. If he was 20 years later, other people would have created e-commerce sites. It would have been a crowded space or someone else would have dominated the area. And he would have said, well, maybe there's a different area of opportunity. In his book, Outliers, I believe it's Outliers, it's one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, he argues that when you look at the super successful people, there are periods of time when we get this massive opportunity. The current one being this dot-com era and the transformation to digital, the prior one being the original Industrial Revolution. When you look at people like Dale Carnegie, or Rockefeller, and all these folks who all seem to accumulate just obscene amounts of wealth all around the same period. And it's because there are periods of economic opportunity. But this is, of course, for the top, not 1%, but 0.00001%, right? When we're talking about scores of people. For most of us, I think a good person can say, I'm going to find opportunity, I'm going to create opportunity, and capitalize and still have a very successful company and career, even if it's not a hundred billion dollar company. Right. Do you like taking that to consideration, right? You think the the industrial revolution was huge, right? Because a lot of not a lot of people got rich, but like you know, again, you said so that 0.001% were able to make and capitalize on it just because of the fact that they had a little money, you know, they had money that was sitting aside and they were able to use it and you know help get their parents' money and all that extra stuff. You know, people were able to like really capitalize on it. Now with this dot com era, now you you can go and you if you talk to a kid or even even someone in their 20s, they're like, Oh yeah, I have an e-commerce website oh yeah i sell stuff online oh yeah i use social media platform to be an influencer to make money you're just seeing all these different varieties of way people are making income right which is ridiculous which is crazy because going back even 10 years ago that was kind of seen absurd it was seen like impossible to be able to make a living off of just platforms like youtube instagram and just by posting things right and do you think there's an era coming where there will be a different type of different type of opportunity instead of a dot-com era? Do you think there's a different era coming soon? Absolutely. When you look at the history of labor, we see transformation. Right now, everyone laments, oh, we're losing manufacturing to robotics, right? Right. Oh, this is horrible. Poor people, they're losing their jobs. And at a micro level for any given person, it is unfortunate. But we don't lament the fact that 
we used to be 70% farmers here in the United States. No one says, oh, couldn't we go back where more of us were working on the farm? We're all better off now that I think it's around 4 or 8% of the U.S. population is in farming. Wow. But that small percentage of our population can produce enough food for everyone, and that lets us focus elsewhere. Right. No one is saying, oh, the poor milkman, travel agent, toll taker. Right? No one's saying, oh, we got to protect the toll taker yeah. jobs. We said we can automate those jobs and save time, right? save efficiency. Now, as jobs go online, for example, or as things get automated, we get more efficiency, lower costs, faster production times. What this does at a society macroscopic level is it frees up that labor to move elsewhere. As people left the farms, they went into the factories and helped propel the industrial revolution. As people leave the, say, manufacturing workforce, they can move into other industries. But here's the one catch. The transformations we saw during the Industrial Revolution happened over generations. So a kid could grow up saying, I don't want to stay on the farm, and my dad no longer needs me on the farm, I'm going to go off to the factory. And he could make that decision early to change his career and go in a different place. It was a lot harder for someone later in their career. Even, even during the Industrial Revolution, someone who was 30 or 40 could say, I am leaving the farm, I'm going to the factory because they were low-skilled jobs. Right. Now it's a little harder for people to say, I'm 40 years old, I was an Uber driver, I was a toll taker, now I'm gonna become a social media influencer or learn to be a software developer or learn some high-end manufacturing that right. was still me in the US. So I think it's still possible, but we as a society need to recognize the pace of change is faster and need to support this dynamic labor shift that will be more continual in our lifetimes. Do you think that, you know, when you said like, you know, a child back in, you know, in the early 90s, late 80s could have been like, oh, you know, dad, I'm done on the farm, like, you know, with the war and all this stuff just doesn't seem right. You know, like, I think I need to go work elsewhere, right? For Do you think, so are you saying it was easier back then to switch careers than it was, it is now? Well, no, I, that was the 1880s, Sorry, where someone 1880s, would leave the farm. Yes. And so could they do it somewhat, right? Because if you were working on a farm and there was a factory that opened up, there weren't a lot of skilled factory workers back then. And you would show up and say, I can show up to work. I can turn the screw, hit the nail, paint. Say, okay, great. If you look at, for example, today's manufacturing in the US, a lot of it is high-tech manufacturing. You need to take a six or nine month training course. Right. Now, just a note on that, turns out we have such a shortage of skilled high-tech manufacturing workers in the US. Companies will say, you know, or training uh, organizations will say, come in, you know, you will basically have this paid back by the company or we will loan you money for it because there's such demand. Right. But the bigger thing is it requires people to, to shift. When jobs were disappearing in Detroit, for example, I think people were less likely to pick up and move elsewhere because they grew up in Detroit. In fact, one of the things I think holds back the US labor force is the fact that we have promoted home buying. Right. It was not common 100 years ago for most people to own their homes. So you could say, well, we're here now, jobs are over there, we're going to pick up and move. But now people are into home buying in their community, and there's some 
positive benefits from that, but it also creates more friction for people moving where the jobs are. No, for sure. I, I have a question that actually goes kind of part of my startup that I'm doing. And this is actually very similar to what my startup is actually about, which is kind of unique that we came to this kind of topic. And it has to do with the fact that, you know, we're talking, we're talking about now, like into the, in the 20, 2021 with the COVID era. And we're talking about in this, in this future that, you know, everyone had seen and how fast it's moving. Like you mentioned, it's moving very fast paced, right? Do you think that we put a big emphasis on schooling that, uh, that everyone, everyone should get like, you know, everyone needs that kind of secondary education, go, you got to go to university. Now a bachelor's degree is basically considered a high school diploma. And then you need a master's degree. It's like with a master's degree, oh, it's like, okay, now you can get a decent paying job and actually be competitive in the field. Do you think this is actually kind of being more beneficial for us or is it help destroying other industries? Yes and no. Uh, I agree with what you're saying, and I have long criticized that the bachelor's degree became the standard for the middle class. Oh, you have to get a bachelor's degree, and people are going wildly into debt for these degrees that they don't really make use of, and it's not always an effective ROI. So I am actually in favor of more people getting vocational types of training. Now, we normally think of vocation as air conditioner repair or plumbing. And certainly we need those skills too, but we should look at other types of vocational training. In fact, there's an argument to be made that software development is becoming more of a vocation rather than a profession. You could argue the same for social media. So we first we need to shift to more vocational training, but second, we need to recognize the model of you're going to get all your education by roughly age 22 or maybe 24, and then you work. That is not a viable model, given the dynamicism of the labor market. We need to recognize people will have continual training with periods of more intense training, maybe going back to school for six months at a time right. throughout their, their career. And this this actually this actually comes to the uh, the main question that I've, I've been having for the past few 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 years, if not been gnawing in the back of my head, is that you know there's a lot of knowledge that's out there about careers that hasn't been you know put into a place where we as a student could you know access. There's there's been so many. There's different places. You know, you got LinkedIn, you've got Skillshare, you got Coursera, you've got all these different websites that have all these different like programs and all these different certifications you can do you can go job hunting on these different websites like indeed linkedin and all these different things and everyone's talking about all these different careers and blah blah blah. you know what i mean like there's just so much out there but i feel like as a student that you know there's just so many things about careers that i don't understand that that are out there you know i don't understand that you know you can make a career out of selling irons you can make a career out of you know working in a factory you know you don't necessarily have to be continuous just working in a factory but there's different types of manufacturing that you can get into that pays well without you having to put in as much labor as that you think you need to and there's just so much unknown information when it comes to different jobs that i wish i had known when I was in high school, or I wish I, there was a place I could access that had all this information collected in one place without me having to go 
to 26, 60, 70 different websites to try and figure out, you know, what, what this career is. Then after trying to figure out what this career has to offer, I now got to find people in that career. Now I got to keep looking and searching till I can find someone in there who has a success story, who can tell me more about it. Right. And this is the kind of thing that's been gnawing my head. like, what can we do to create something that has all the stuff in one place that has the access to all the people in one place that could solve this issue for when you're in high school or when you're in, even in, you know, grade nine, grade 10, and you're thinking of making some kind of income and you're like, oh, but I can't, I'm too young, but it's like, oh, but you know, you can work from home. There's abilities to work at a younger age that I think people don't realize until they are now. They're like, oh, I can be a social media influencer and I can do this. I can become passive income. There's stocks, there's this. But I think we just there needs to be more education in the different types of careers instead of when you go to school and everyone's main focus is like, oh, doctor, engineer, lawyer, accountant. It's just the basic professionalism that's been existing since the dawn of basically the education era. That is certainly true. The classic career day brings in a very narrow scope of professions. And in fact, really the right way to explore careers is to look at the attributes and behaviors. So for example, there are some people who say, I'm not very social. I don't really want to talk to strangers or even most of my coworkers. I want a job where I sit in front of the computer and get to play with numbers and spreadsheets or write code, right? And there are certain jobs that lend themselves to that isolated type of practice. There are other people who say, I love constantly meeting new people. I wanna be out there. I don't wanna have a nine to five job. I like to be out there. I like to travel and I wanna constantly meet new people. Well, maybe a sales or business development job would be more aligned to that. But to your point, a 16 year old doesn't necessarily say, oh, how about business development? I want to learn about that. Most 16-year-olds don't know what business development is. So if we break down what are some of the different attributes and people can say, oh, I'm interested in doing more of this, less of that, then we can start to align that to here are some opportunities that you might want to explore. Now, at that point, if you give them a list of six potential jobs, certainly we're capable of Googling, what does this job do? hear from someone in this job. Uh, it's It could be more organized onto a single site, but it's at least a little easier. But we have to focus not on the job title, but the job behavior to help guide people. Right. So if you were to say, for example, right, I th- I feel like we're given so many different choices. Like as a, as a person in this generation, I feel like I always have too many choices and I, it's so hard to be decisive and I've noticed that with a lot of people around my age group and people like around around me it's like we have a very hard time deciding what we want to do which is so bad but it's also a good thing at the same time I guess it's it's kind of privilege I guess because we're so indecisive it's like oh I don't know but when you're given a list of things and it's like oh now it's narrowed down from a million to like six different things I feel like it's a lot easier for you to choose one and be more content with it then you know, not being able to decide from like a million different things. Well, the good news is this isn't 1830 where your choice was work on the farm or work on the farm. But one way we can overcome some of this paralysis we get from all the opportunities is even individually, we can talk to people. And this is something I recommend in my chapter on career planning, which is 
start talking to people, everyone you meet, ask them about their jobs. Yeah. What do they do? How did they get there? What do they like? What don't they like? And it don't just take the superficial, okay, yeah, you're a doctor. I get it. You do surgery. If you consider lawyers, we all know what lawyers do, but we know that because we've seen them on TV and in movies, right? And we see that dramatic courtroom scene. Now, if you actually talk to a lawyer, they laugh and say, it's nothing like TV. Most of the time, a lawyer is sitting in her office, reading legal briefs, researching prior case law, working on a contract. It's nothing exciting. It's not telegenic. And that's why we never see it on TV. And so many people who go into law, we grow up watching whatever the top legal show of the generation was, and we get excited about that. And then people wind up disappointed in it. So if you want to go into law, ask a lawyer, how do you actually spend your day, right? How many hours a week do you spend doing what? And do this for any of the people you meet and start to hear, you know, this sounds interesting or this does not and start to ask why. What are the patterns you're noticing? If you find, oh, these engineers and these scientists and these doctors, there's something exciting about they're solving these technical problems, these scientific problems. Okay, I'm noticing a trend here. I should look at jobs in science. If you're not turned on by that, if you're saying, oh, this all sounds terrible. Okay, right. look for jobs that don't involve a lot of science to start to look for the patterns. No, for sure. Yeah, I, that's another main, like I remember being young and, you know, what, five, six years ago starting. And every time I meet someone, that's the thing. That was the main reason why this podcast was started was I want to know what other people are doing out there, why they're doing it, why do they like it, what's the difference, you know, why why they choose to be what they are instead of, you know, something else. What what makes them more intrigued about their career that they, they're focused in right now? Because, you know, as a person growing up, you know, being in mechanical engineering in the aerospace field, I feel like it's so hard. You can get very wrapped up into just thinking, oh, this is it. This is the only thing I can possibly do with my life. That you forget that there's still a whole world of possibility. What if things don't work out? What if you don't get a job in the aerospace? So then what are you supposed to do? You can't just sit at home and do nothing. You got to do something. And I think just learning about different opportunities that do exist gives me a chance or gives my listeners a chance to realize that maybe there's potential to do something else with their lives. Absolutely. It begins with an exploration of talking to other people. What do you teach in your class that you find is probably the most important thing that your students should take from, take away from? That these are learnable skills. Unfortunately, too many people think there are natural communicators, natural leaders, natural negotiators, and I'm just not one. But in fact, all of these skills are learnable. The same way you can learn baseball or learn accounting, you can learn to be a leader. You can learn to negotiate better. You can learn to be a master networker. All the skills are learnable and they're really not that hard once you look at it in the right way. Now it's true that some people are more naturally effective at, just like some people are more natural athletes or more natural gifted public speakers, but all of us are capable of learning these skills and even a little bit of improvement has a massive ROI. Right. Um, yeah. So what are, what are some of these main skills that, that you guys teach in, in, your, in your class? Yeah, the skills, and I'll break them down how I have them organized in the book. 
because it correlates a lot to what we have in the class. Creating an effective career plan so that you know where you're going and don't waste time. Learning to work effectively, knowing how to manage your manager, work within the corporate culture. Interviewing. Now, in the class, we teach interviewing as a candidate, and there's plenty of resources on that. In the book, I also teach how to interview from the other side of the table. This is a real irony. I have met so many executives, people with decades of experience, they have never had any training in how to interview someone, right? This is right, crazy. Right. They just assume, well, I've been on the other side, I guess I'll figure it out. But of course, when we actually focus and pay attention, we get much more effective leadership and management skills. And then the last section of my book, we cover communications, negotiation, networking, and one topic we unfortunately don't have a lot of time to really get into in the class, which is ethics. Right. That those are those are skills that you feel like, I feel like a lot of people just say, like you said, that they just know how to do very well, right? Like someone can be like, Oh, I communicate well, it's like, can you communicate the right things well? Are you able to communicate your idea properly to the other person of what you're trying to explain or what you're trying to say? Because I've noticed like, yeah, I can communicate, but I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily know how to communicate my idea well to someone. And that itself is a deal breaker for some people. Within these fields, they are so broad. So we'll take communication. As you point out, there's different types of communication. There's explaining complex ideas. There is public speaking, there's crafting an effective email, there is selling an idea as part of communication. If we look at leadership, it's not just as someone a good leader or not, they might be effective in one role at scaling organizations, they might not be so effective during a crisis, or some might be a good leader during a transformation, right? So there's different aspects to these types of skills different applications of them. And all of us, no matter how good we are, can continue to get better at components of them. No, for sure. For sure. What kind of last piece of advice would you give someone who is thinking of, you know, switching out of their career or trying to like continue to grow in their career? What, what kind of advice would you give them when it comes into terms of like the skills that they would need to succeed to do this such a thing? The key thing when you're trying to learn these skills is to recognize it is a different type of learning. We have traditionally learned by having some experts stand in front of us and spew out information. This is what our classrooms were like in high school, in college. Even as you listen to a podcast or read a book, an expert is saying, do the following. And this is great if you're trying to learn math, grammar, history, you're just trying to memorize knowledge. Right, And that's a very effective way to learn, and I still recommend doing it for that. But there is no simple formula for leadership. There's no three steps that will universally help you to communicate. All of these skills are very nuanced in their applicability. So just reading a book, just listening to a podcast, taking a class, it's not enough. You need to really explore them in depth. And the best way to do that is to create a peer learning group. This is how we're teaching the skills in the class at MIT. This is how business schools have been teaching it for years. You want to get a group of people so you can get some of your coworkers. If your company isn't going to support this, get some friends, start a local meetup group and create a group of people and say, we're going to explore this topic. Then you can take 
content. So for example, you can take my book, chop it up into pieces and say, we're going to read these pages and then we're going to come together to discuss it. Let's talk about this aspect of leadership. How do you see it? Oh, this is how I see it. Hey, what would you do in this situation that I faced in my company two years ago? Oh, that's an interesting approach. I wouldn't have thought of that. I'm so glad I'm talking to you about it. And so you get these different approaches. Now, I mentioned you can use my book and certainly you can, but I don't want you to think I'm just trying to push more copies of my book. <laughs> oh, for sure. You can use any book, grab another leadership book or one on networking or communications or any of these topics. You can go read articles. You can use great podcasts like this one. The important thing is that you take some initial content and then you have that discussion with other folks. And on my website, on the first download on the resources page, explains how you can create such a program so you can do this effectively. Oh, that's awesome. It's definitely something uh, I feel like everyone, even as an engineer student perspective, I think leadership and communication is so important because if you create something or if you're trying to work on something, if you can't communicate your idea as an engineer, you, you know, it's something that we're taught in class all the time. And when you're taking our communication classes, it's like, you know, if you can't communicate your idea, what's the point of even coming up with it? What's the point of someone trying to build it? Like, if you can't do it yourself, then you, there's no way some, you're going to be able to communicate to someone and be like, oh, this is what I need to done. If you can't tell them what you need done specifically or in a way that they'd understand, your idea is never going to get off the ground. So it, that's very important. I think it's something that we all need to work on. doesn't matter what kind of field or career that we're in. Uh, so thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your time. Uh, and it was an amazing conversation that we had about, you know, tech startups and, uh, and learning different skills that could help us succeed in our, in our lives and careers. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, for sure. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. We're listening to Stability Podcast, hosted by Hassan Ashraf. All brand new episodes of Stability Podcast are posted on Mondays at 6 p.m. For more news on Stability Podcast, please follow our Instagram at Stability Podcast, our Twitter at Stability underscore pod, and our YouTube channel, which you should subscribe to at Stability Podcast.